Section eight of the Fifth Queen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Fifth Queen by Ford Maddox Ford. Part two. The House of Eyes. Chapter one. A grave and bearded man was found to cup her. He gave her a potion composed of the juice of nightshade and an infusion of churchyard moss. Her eyes grew dilated, and she had evil dreams. She lay in a small chamber that was quite bare and had a broken window, and the magister ran from room to room begging for quilts to cover her. It was nobody's affair. The Lord Privy Seal, her uncle, the Catholics, and the King were still perturbed about Anne of Cleves, and there were no warrants signed for Catherine's housing or food. All the palace was trembling with confusion, for when the Queen had been upon the point of setting out from Rochester, the King was said to have been overcome by a new spasm of disgust. She was put by again. The young Earl of Surrey, a cousin of Catherine's, gave Udal contemptuously a couple of crowns towards her nourishment. Udal applied them to bribing Throckmorton, the spy who had been with Privy Seal upon the barge, to inscribe on his lord's tablet the words, Catherine Howard to be provided for. Udal made up his courage sufficiently to speak to the Duke, whom he met in the corridor. The Duke was jaundiced against his niece, because her cousin Culpepper had fallen upon Sir Christopher Aske, the Duke's captain who had kept the postern. It had needed seven men to master him, and this great tumult had arisen in the King's own courtyard. Nevertheless the Duke sent his astrologer to cast Catherine's horoscope. He signed, too, an order that some girl be found to attend on her. Udal filled in the girl's name as Margot Poins, the granddaughter of Old Badge, of Austin Friars. Even among these clamours his tooth watered for her, and he gave the order to young Poins to execute. The young man rode off into Bedfordshire, where his sister had been sent out of the way to the house of their aunt. He presented the order as in the nature of a writ from the Duke, and amongst Lutherans in London a heavy growl of rage went up. Against Norfolk, against the Papists of the Privy Council, and, above all, against Catherine Howard, whom they called the new harlot. Catherine, having taken much nightshade juice, was raving upon her bed. The leech became convinced that she was possessed by a demon, because the pupils of her eyes were as large as silver groats, and her hands picked at the coverlets. He ordered that thirteen priests should say an exorcism at the door of her room, and that the potion of nightshade, since it might inconvenience without dislodging the fiend inhabiting her slender body, should be discontinued. Udal sought for priests, but having no money, he was disregarded by them. He ran to the chaplain of the Bishop of Winchester. For the clergy upheld or ordained by Archbishop Cranmer were held to be less efficacious in matters of witchcraft and possession. Just then Cromwell had triumphed, and Anne of Cleves was upon the water, coming to the palace. Bishop Gardiner's chaplain, a fat man with beady and guileless eyes sunk in under an immense forehead, imagined that Udal's visit was a pretext for overhearing the words of rage and discomfiture that in the papist centre might be let drop about the new queen. For Udal, because Privy Seal had set him with the Lady Mary, passed amongst the papists for one of Cromwell's informants, and it amused his sardonic and fantastic nature to affect mysterious denials which made the fiction the more firmly believed and gave to Udal himself a certain hated prestige. The chaplain answered that in the present turmoil no such body as thirteen clergymen could be found. 
that the lady shall be torn in pieces!' Udal shrieked. Panic had overcome him. Who knew that the fiend, having torn his Catherine asunder, might not enter into the body of his Margot, who was already at her bedside? His lips quivered with terror, his eyes smiled furiously, he wrung his hands. He swore he would penetrate to the King's Highness' self. Udal was a man who struck at nothing to gain a point. He had heard from Catherine that the King had spoken graciously to her, and he swore once more that she was the apple of the King's eye, as well as a beloved disciple of Privy Seal's. "'Be sure,' he foamed, "'they shall be avenged on a gardener and his crew if you let her die.' The chaplain said impassively, "'God forbid that we, who are loyal to His Highness, should listen to these tales you bring us of his lechery.' They had there a new queen, their duty was to her, and to know Catherine Howard. The bishop's clergy were all joyfully setting to welcome the lady from Cleves, they had no time to waste over a leman's demons. It overjoyed him to refuse Privy Seal's man a boon on the plea of loyalty to the new queen. Nevertheless, he went straight to the presence of the bishop, and told him the marvels that Udal had reported. "'The man is incontinent and a babbler,' the chaplain said. "'We may believe one-tenth.' "'Well, you shall find for once how this wench is housed and where,' his master answered moodily. "'God knows what we may believe in these days. Doubtless the nuntio of Satan hath a new plot in the hatching.' Making these enquiries, the chaplain came upon the backwash of Udal's reports that the king loved some leman. Some lady somewhere, some said a Howard, some a Rochford, some would have it a Spanish woman, was being hidden up, either by the king, by the Duke of Norfolk, or by the Privy Seal. God knew the truth of these things, but similar had happened before, and it was certain that the Cleves woman had been for a long time kept dangling at Rochester. Perhaps that was the reason. His Highness had his own ways in these matters, but where there was smoke, generally fire was to be found. The chaplain brought this budget back to Bishop Gardiner. Gardiner swore a wild oath that, by the bones of the confessor, they had unmasked a new plot of Satan's legate, the Privy Seal, but by the grace of God, he would counterplot him. Udal, who had started all these rumours, had run to get the help of a dean of Durham, with whom formerly he had had much converse as to the position of the islands of the blessed. He never found him. The palace was in confusion, with the doors all open and men running from room to room to ask of each other how far it might be safe to be extravagant in their demonstrations of joy at the coming of the new queen. All night long, from about dusk, the palace rang with salvos of artillery, loud shouts and the blowing of horns. The windows glowed duskily now and then with the light of bonfires that leapt up and subsided. Margot Poins, who was used to rejoicing in the city, set the heavy wooden bar across the door in Catherine Howard's room, turned the immense key in the rusty lock, and opened to no knocking until the day broke. There were shouts and stumblings in the corridor outside, and the magister himself, very intoxicated and shrieking, came hammering at the door with several others towards one in the morning. Catherine could walk by noon to the lodging that at last had been assigned to her by the Privy Seal's warrant. The magister, having got himself soundly beaten the night before, was still sleeping away the effects of it, so she and Margot stayed for an hour in solitude. Voices passed the door many times, and at last a master Viridus entered stealthily. He was one of the Lord Cromwell's secretaries, and he bore a purse. His name had been green, but he had translated it to give a more worshipful sound. His eyes were furtive, and he moved his lips perpetually in imitation of his master. 
wore a hooded cap, and made much use of the Italian language. "'Bounty is the sign of the great, and honourable service ensureth its continuance,' he said in a dry and arrogant voice. "'This is my lord Privy Seal's veils. My lord hath gone to his own house.' He presented the purse of gold, and peered round at the room, which, following the warrant, had been assigned by a clerk from the Earl Marshal's office. "'I thank your lord, and shall endeavour to deserve his good bounty,' Catherine said. The nightshade juice being left two days behind, she had the use of her eyes, and much of the stiffness had gone out of her wrist. "'Your ladyship had much the wiser,' he answered. He lifted the hangings, and under pretense of examining into her comfort, peered into the great Flemish press, and felt under the heavy black table to see if it had a drawer for papers. Cromwell had been forced, following the King's command, to give Catherine her place. But he had no love for Howard's, and already the maids of the Lady Mary were a mutinous knot. Feridus was instructed to keep an attentive eye upon the girl, for they might hang her very easily since she was outspoken, or having got her neck into a noose they could work upon her terror and make her spy upon the Lady Mary herself. None of the Lady Mary's women were housed very sumptuously, but in this room there were at least an old tapestry, a large Flemish chair, a feather-bed in a niche like an arched cell over which the hangings could be drawn, and a cord of wood for the fire. He hummed and hawed that workmen must come to bring her better hangings, and a servitor be found to keep her door. A watch was to be set on her. The women who measured her for clothes would try to discover whom she loved and hated, and the serving-man at her door would report her visitors. "'My lord hath you very present in his mind,' Beridus said. She was commanded to go on the Saturday to the Houston Austin Friars, where my lord was preparing a great feast in the honour of the Queen. Catherine said that she had no dress to go in. "'A seemly decent habit shall be got ready,' he answered. "'You shall sit in a gallery in private, and it shall be pointed out to you what lords you shall speak with, and whom avoid. For, come bella giovinezza, how beautiful is youth, what a pleasant season! And since it lasted but a short space, it behoved us all, and her as much as any, to make as much as might be whilst it endured. The regard of a great lord such as Privy Seal brought present favours and future honours in the land, honours being pleasant in their turn, when youth is past, like the mellow suns of autumn. Thereby, indeed, he apostrophised her, the savour of youth renewed itself again and again. Anzi rinova com valuna, in the words of Boccace. Her fair and upright beauty made Veridus acknowledge how excellent a spy upon the Lady Mary she might make. Papistry and a loyal love for the old faith seemed to be as strong in her candid eyes as it was implicit in her name. The Lady Mary might trust her for that, and talk with her because of her skill in the learned tongues. Then, if they held her in their hands, how splendid a spy she might make, being so trusted! She might well be won for their cause by the offer of liberal rewards, though Privy Seal's hand had been heavy upon all her kinsfolk. Those men of Privy Seal's get from him a maxim which he got in turn from his master Machiavelli. Advance therefore those whom it shall profit thee to make thy servants, for men forget sooner the death of a father than the loss of a patrimony and either by threats or by rewards they might make her very useful. She had been minded to mock him in the beginning of his speech, but his dangerous pale blue eyes made her feel that if he were ridiculous he was also very powerful, and that she was in the hands of these men. 
Therefore she answered that youth indeed was a pleasant season, when health, good victuals, and the love of God sustained it. He surveyed her out of the corners of his eyes. "'Seek, then, to deserve these good things,' he said. He stayed some time longer directing her how she should wear her clothes, and then in the gathering dusk he dwindled stealthily through the door. "'It is to make you like a chained-up beast or slave,' Margot said to her mistress. "'Why, hold your tongue, Coney, after to-day,' Catherine answered. "'The walls shall hear. I am a very poor man's daughter, and must even earn my bread if I would stay here.' "'They could never tie me so,' Margot retorted. Her mistress laughed. "'Why, you may set nets for the wind, but what a man will catch is still uncertain.' It was cold, and they piled up the fire, waiting for some one to bring them candles. A tall and bulky figure, with a heavy cloak cast over one shoulder in the Spanish fashion, but with a priest's cap, was suddenly in the doorway. "'Ha! Huh? Magister?' Catherine said, knowing no other man that could visit her. But the firelight shone upon a heavy firm jaw that was never the magister's, on white hands, and in threatening, steadfast eyes. "'I am the unworthy Bishop Gardiner of Winchester,' a harsh voice said. "'I seek one Catherine Howard. Peace be with you in these evil days.' Catherine fell upon her knees before this holy man. He gave her his blessing perfunctorily, and muttered some words of the exorcism against demons. "'I am even cured,' Catherine said. He sent Margot Poins from the room, and stood in the firelight that threw his great shadow to shake upon the hangings, towering above Catherine Howard upon her knees. He was silent, as if he would threaten her, and his brooding eyes glowed and devoured her face. Here, then, she thought, was the man from the other camp descending secretly upon her. He had no need to threaten, for she was of his side. He said that a magister Udal had reported that she stood in need of Christian aid, and speaking Latin with a heavy voice, he interrogated her as to her faith. The times were evil, many and various heresies stalked about the land. Let her beware of trafficking with them. Kneeling still in the firelight, she answered that, so far as was lawful, she was a daughter of the church. He muttered, Lawful? and looked at her for a long time with brooding and fanatical eyes. "'I hear you have read many heathen books under a strange master.' She answered, "'Most reverend, I am for the faith in the old way.' "'A prudent tongue is also a Christian possession,' he muttered. "'Nay, there is no one to hear in this room,' she said. He bent over her to raise her to her feet, and holding before her eyes his missal, he indicated to her certain prayers that she should recite in order to prevent the fiends coming to her again. Suddenly he commanded her to tell him how often she had conversed with the King's Highness. Gardiner was the bitterest of all whom Cromwell had to hate him. He had been of the King's Council, and a secretary before Cromwell had reached the court, and but for Cromwell he might well have been the King's best minister. But Cromwell had even taken his secretaryship and he was set upon having privy sealed down all through those ten years. He had been bishop before any of these changes had been thought of, and by such papists as Catherine Howard he was esteemed the most holy man in the land. She told him that she had seen the king but once, for a little time. "'They told me it was many times,' he answered fiercely. "'Should I have come here merely to chatter with you?' 
There was something sinister and harsh, even in the bluish tinge of his shaven jaws, and his agate-blue eyes were sombre, threatening, and suspicious. She answered, "'But once,' and related the story very soberly. He threatened her with his finger. "'Have a care that you speak truth. Things will not always remain in this guise. I come to warn you that you speak the King with a loyal purpose. His Highness listens sometimes to the prompting of his women.' "'You might have saved your journey,' she answered. "'I could speak no otherwise if he loved me.' He gazed involuntarily round at the hangings, as if he suspected a listener. "'Your most reverence does ill to doubt me,' Catherine said submissively. "'I am of a true house.' "'No house is true, save where it finds its account,' he answered moodily. He could not believe that she spoke the truth, for he was unable to believe that any man could speak the truth. But it was true she was poorly housed, raggedly dressed, and hidden up in a corner. Nevertheless, these might be artifices. He made ostentatiously and disdainfully towards the door. "'Why, God keep you!' He moved his fingers in a negligent blessing. "'I believe you are true, though you are of little use.' Suddenly he shot out. "'If you would stay here in peace, your cousin Culpepper must be gone.' Catherine put her hand to her heart, in sudden fear of these men who surrounded her and knew everything. "'What hath Tom done?' she asked. "'He hath put a shame upon thee,' the bishop answered. He had fallen upon Sir Christopher Aske, he had been set in chains for it, in the Duke's ward-room. But upon the coming of the Queen the night before, all misdemeanants had been cast loose again. Culpepper had been kept by the guards from entering the palace, where he had no place but he had fallen in with the magister Udal in the courtyard. Being maudlin and friendly at the same time, he had cast his arms round the magister's neck, claiming him for a loved acquaintance. They had drunk together, and had started towards midnight to find the chamber of Catherine Howard. Culpepper seeking his cousin, and the magister, Margot Poins. On the way they had enlisted other jovial souls, and the tumult in the corridor had arisen. "'These scandals are best avoided,' the bishop finished. I have known women lose their lives through them when they came to have husbands." "'I could have calmed him,' Catherine said. "'He is always silent at a word from me.' Gardiner stood pondering, his head hanging down. His eyes, hard and blue, flashed at her and then down again at the floor. "'They told me you were the King's good friend,' he said resentfully. "'Your gossip Udall told my chaplain, and it hath been repeated.' "'They will talk where there are a many together,' Catherine answered. "'The magister is a notorious babbler, and will have told many lies.' "'He is a spy of privy seals, and deep in his counsels,' Gardiner answered gloomily. A heavy wind that had arisen hurled itself against the dark casement. Little flaws of cold air penetrated the room, and the bishop pulled his cap further down over his ears. "'My lord privy seal would send my cousin to Calais, for there is fighting to come," Catherine said. Gardiner raised his head sharply at Cromwell's name. "'You speak sense, at the end,' he muttered. To him, too, it had occurred that if she was to be the King's peaceably, this madman must be gone. If Cromwell wished this lover of this girl out of the way, the reason was not obscure. "'A man of his hath been here this very day,' Catherine said. "'Privy Seal learned whore-mastering in Italy.' Gardiner triumphed. He saw signs that his highness inclined to you. Have a care for your little soul. 
"'Why, I think Privy Seal had no such vain imagination,' Catherine answered submissively. She would have laughed that the magister's insane babbling should have raised such a coil, but Gardiner was a man esteemed very saintly, and she kept her eyes on the floor. "'Give thou ear to no doctrines of privy seals,' he answered swiftly. "'Thy soul should burn, I will curse thee. If the king shall offer thee favours for thy friends, come thou to me for spiritual guidance.' She opened amazed and candid eyes upon him. "'But this is a folly,' she said. A king may regard one for a minute, then it is past. Privy Seal would not bring me up against the king." He flashed his gloomy blue eyes at her, suspecting her and still threatening. "'I know how Privy Seal will plot,' he answered passionately. Having failed with one woman, he will bring another." He clenched his hands angrily and unclenched them. The wind moaned for a moment among the chimney-stacks. "'So it is.' he cried from deep down in his chest. If it were not so, how is there all this clamour about his highness and a woman?" "'Most reverend,' she said, "'there is no end to the inventions of Magister Eudel. There is none to the machinations of the fiend, and Eudel is of his counsels,' he said. "'Be careful, I tell you, for your soul's sake. Cromwell shall come to you offering great bribes. Have a care, I say.' She attempted to say that Eudel had no voice at all in Privy Seal's counsels, being a garrulous magpie that no sane man would trust. But Gardiner had crossed his arms, and stood immense and shadowy in the firelight. He hissed irritably between his teeth when she spoke, as if she interrupted his meditation. "'All the world knows Eudel for his spy,' he said sombrely. "'If Eudel hath babbled, God be thanked. I say again, if Privy Seal bring thee to the King, come thou to me but by the grace of heaven I will forestall Privy Seal with thee and the King." She forbore to contradict him any more. He had this maggot in his head, and was so wild to defeat Privy Seal with his own tool. He muttered, "'Think you, Privy Seal knoweth not the King's taste. I tell you, he hath seen an inclination in him towards you. This is a plot, but I have sounded it.' She let him talk, and asked with a malice too fine for him to discern. I should not shun the King's presence for my soul's sake." "'God forbid,' he answered. "'I may use thee to bring down Privy Seal.' He picked up a piece of bark from a faggot beside the fire, and rolled it between his fingers. She stood looking at him intently, her lips a little parted, tall, graceful, and submissive. "'You are more fair-skinned than any His Highness has favoured before,' he said in a meditative voice. Yet Cromwell knows the King's tastes better than any man." He sank down into her tall-backed chair, and suddenly tossed the piece of bark into the fire. "'I would have you walk across the floor, elevating your arms, as you were the goddess Flora." She tripped towards the door, held her arms above her head, turned her long body to right and left, bent very low in courtesy to him, and let her hands fall restfully into her lap. The firelight shone upon the folds of her dress and in the white lining of her hood. He looked at her, leaning over the arm of the chair, his blue eyes hard with the strenuous rage of his new project. "'You could take part in an Italian interlude—a mask.' "'I have a better memory of the French or Latin,' she answered. "'You do not turn pale. Your knees knock not together.' "'I think I blush most,' she said seriously. He answered. You will be the better of a little colour. 
and began muffling his face with his cloak. "'See you, then,' his harsh voice commanded. "'You shall see their highnesses at Privy Seal's house on the Saturday, but they shall see you at mine on the Tuesday. If you are good enough to serve the turn of Privy Seal, you may be good enough to serve mine. The King listens sometimes to the promptings of his women. I will teach you how you may bring this man down, and set me in his place.' She reflected for a moment. "'I would well serve you,' she said. "'But I do not believe this fable of the King, and I have no memory of Italian.' She talked of being the Lady Mary's servant, or that she must get her lady's leave. His brows grew heavy, his eyes threatening and alarming beneath their heavy lids. "'Be you faithful to me!' he thundered. Even his thin and delicate hands seemed to menace her. "'Retain your obedience to your faith. Your duty is to that, and to no earthly lady before that.' Her eyes were cast down, her lips did not move. He said harshly, "'It will go ill with you to become known to Cromwell I have visited you. Keep this matter secret as you love your liberty. I will send you the words you shall say by a private bearer. After, maybe, his highness shall safeguard you, I admonishing him. But the Lady Mary shall bid you obey me in all things." He opened the door, and put his head out cautiously. Suddenly he drew it back, and said in Latin, "'Here is a spy.' He did not flinch, but advanced into the corridor, keeping his back to the servitor, whom already Master Veridus had sent to keep her door. Gardiner fumbled in his robes, and pulled out his missal. He turned the pages over, and speaking in a feigned and squeaky voice, once more indicated to her prayers against the visitations of fiends. Reading them aloud, he interspersed the Latin of the missal with the phrases. "'You may pray to God. He have not seen my face. Be you very silent and secret, or you are undone. I could in no wise save you from Cromwell, unless the King becomes your protector.' He finished in the vulgar tongue. "'I pray my prayers with you have been availed to give you relief. But a simple priest as myself is of small skill in these visitations. You should have sent to some great churchman, or one of the worshipful bishops.' "'Good Father Henry, I thank you,' she answered, having entered into his artifice. He went away, feigning to limp on his right knee, and keeping his face from the spy. At the corner of the corridor, Margot Poins, an immense blonde and gentle figure in Lutheran grey, stood back in the hangings. The magister Udal leant over her, supporting himself with one hand against the wall above her head, and one leg crossed beneath his gown. "'Come you into my room,' Catherine said to the girl, and to the magister, "'Avoid, man of books. I will have no maid of mine undone by thee.' "'Venio honoris causa,' he said pertly, and Margot uttered, "'He seeks me in wedlock.' In a gruff, uncontrolled voice of a great young girl's confusion, and immense blushes covered her large cheeks. Catherine laughed. She was sorely afraid of the serving-man behind her, for that he was a spy set there by Veridus she was very sure, and she was casting about in her mind for a device that should let her tell whether or no he had known the bishop. The squeaky voice and the feigned limp seemed to her stratagems ignoble and futile on the part of a great churchman and his mania of plots and counterplottings had depressed and wearied her, for she expected the great to be wise. But she played her part for him as it was her duty. She spoke to the girl with her scarlet cheeks. "'Believe thou the magister after he hath ta'en thee for a priest. He hath sought me and two score others in the cause of honour. Get you in, sweetheart.' 
She pushed the girl in at the door. The serving-man sat on his stool. His shock of yellow hair had never known a comb, but he had a decent suit of purplish wool-cloth. He had his eyes dully on the ground. "'As you value your servitorship, let no man come into my room when I be out,' Catherine said to him. "'Saving only the Father Henry that was here now.' The man raised expressionless blue eyes to her face. "'I know not his favours,' he said in a peasant's mutter. "'Maybe I should know him if I saw him again. I am main good at knowing people.' "'Why, he is from the Shears,' Catherine added, still playing, though she was certain that the man knew Gardiner. "'You shall know him by his voice and his limp.' He answered, "'Maybe,' and dropped his eyes to the ground. She sent him to fetch her some candles, and shut the door upon him. End of section 8